Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This week on the show, Canon fixes the 7D, we fixate on focus, and an interview with iStock photographer Rich Lake. Right here on This Week in Photography, number 114. And we're back for another exciting episode of This Week in Photography. Pretty exciting show today. Lots of news to talk about. Uh, Before we get to that, let's uh, give a shout out to all the people that are on the show right now. Uh, We've got Mr. Steve Simon coming to us from New York City. Hey, Steve. Has a week passed already? It seems like we were just here 10 minutes ago. I know. Your hair is growing. Thank you. (laughs) It's for those video folks online, <laughs> Steve's hair is is very impressive. The hair watch, yeah, <laughs> it is chia pet. And uh, we've got Mr. <laughs> Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. No comments about my hair, please. No, no, no comments. You're covering it up with those gigantic headphones. I see. Yep. And uh, it, running the uh, the control panels at Twit Cottage is Alex Lindsay. Hey, Alex. How's it going? It is going great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, you know, it's always for some reason on Monday. It's always like this process to get my head back into the into the mixer. Yeah, so, yeah. They're I always feel a little off off balance at the very beginning, but then I'll, I'll be okay. Doing crazy stuff all weekend. I know. I feel the same way. <laughs> all right, let's give a shout out to our sponsors. Uh, the first one is Squarespace.com. Um, Alex, you want to tell the folks about? Uh, sure. Sure. Twip, uh, Twip is brought to you by Squarespace.com. Uh, it's a fast and easy way to publish high-quality websites. You can get a free trial at, uh, and 10% off uh, your new account at Squarespace.com slash Twip. That's Squarespace.com slash T-W-I-P. The podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com, uh, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Uh, for a free audio, audio book of your choice, go to AudiblePodcast.com slash Twip. You know, just a little piggyback on audiblepodcast.com and Audible in general. Um, so I, I was I was on a flight recently, and I, I picked up a book to read on the plane. And I picked it was a, a crowdsourcing. I forget the name of the author, but the name of the book was crowdsourcing. Basically, talking about how the power of crowds is changing business. Uh, and I got through like three or four chapters. Uh, but when I got home, I'm always so busy. I never have the time to just sit down and read a book captive like I am on the plane. So I downloaded it from Audible, the same book, and I'm almost done with it. And yeah? so it's like I have the, the paper copy and the digital copy, but the digital copy uh, won the race. So I love it. It's easier to be smarter, faster, you know, with, with Audible. So exactly. what's in the news? In the news today, Canon is prepping a firmware update for the 7D, which Alex just bought about 15 of. Apparently, uh, they're having a ghosting phenomena in the camera. Did you experience any of that, Alex, with, you know, the, with the ones? You know, we, we've been just starting to test it, and for the shots that we have, uh, we haven't seen any of it. But I think that the I – I can't remember what I was looking at it, but it's not a uh, – 
there are there there's some there's some specific settings you have to use to get to that ghosting. It's not happening with every camera uh, across the board, uh, and it's really really a specific uh, problem. So most people probably don't see it at all. We haven't seen it at all. Uh, so far, we're really happy. We don't have 15 of the 70s, although that's a great idea. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but we we have two of them. Um, and the Christmas uh, is coming. Testing. What were you saying, Steve? No, I was just saying Christmas is coming. But yeah, exactly. I wanted if, to, to if, ask you guys, I mean, not a knock against Canon, but it just seems that uh, – and, the, and these new digital cameras are so complex and so many areas there where things can go wrong. But it seems like in the last few releases, there have been problems with Canon cameras, albeit you know small ones. But um, it can't really be good for them because, I mean, the, the, the equipment arguably is, is fantastic. Um, yet there seems to be these little things that seem to be released. I don't know if it's a quality control, it's a rush to market thing, but uh, that seems to have been happening these last few releases, don't you think? It, I, it does seem like we've seen a lot of this. I don't know if it's just canon, but I think everything's moving so fast now. You know, these people have to be rushing this stuff out because the product life cycle is so short. Uh, this was kind of a weird one because you know it's it's funny because it sounds like some weird uh, double exposure thing that you get uh, used to get on film and you did something wrong. Mm. Yeah, we used to call that a creative effect, right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's so, just a Halloween feature. Get yeah, exactly. Just a little bit of ghosting. <laughs> okay, so Fred is I'm going to be taking over um, because uh, Fred is uh, having some connection problems here. So this is this is good. This, I think this is a first for us where we start with one person and. Uh, and finish with someone else. So, um, so anyway, we also also in the news uh, we have uh, Canon cameras uh, profits uh, rise despite the, the uh, falling sales. So, and, and it, it appears to be that, that the falling uh, sales it's a strong yen. So the yen has saved Canon. It's all <laughs> about the yen, you know. So uh, um, and now now also in the news. Uh, well, this is something that Ron brought up, so we'll let him talk about it a little bit. A new Nikon app for the iPhone. Um, uh, Ron, is it, oh, so I'm sorry, Steve. Steve, you, yeah. you're the one that posted this. So tell us a little bit about this uh, this app. I, I did, and for TWIP listeners uh, listening worldwide, uh, apparently it's only available from the iTunes Store in Canada. Sorry, in, in the United States, um, which can be frustrating for you know worldwide users. But it's a free app that uh, Nikon introduced, and on it um, there are issues of Nikon World Magazine. There's videos um, from uh, Mark Alberhaski, Nikon photographer, Joe McNally. Uh, as well, there's um, uh, Nikon uh, guru Michael Rubin uh, gives some Capture NX tips. It's a free app. Um, it appears to me that it'd be kind of fun to uh, to look at uh, when you've got some downtime and you want to just uh, you know maybe look at some great stuff and and learn a little bit. Uh, more about photography. So it's a great idea. I suspect uh, we're going to see other manufacturers uh, follow suit, uh, you know, with the iPhone. So, is, so Steve, is this, is this uh, sort of more like an online magazine kind of thing or is it intended to be kind of a resource in the field or a little bit? It seems like it's almost a little bit of both. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, it's more of an online magazine at this point, um, kind of a, a way to sort of catch up on uh, some tips you can uh, see images uh, with photographers uh, giving uh, their narrative to the images. Um, and I suspect it's going to be uh, constantly updated with Nikon World Magazine. It's kind of a free subscription, so you can see what's going on there. Uh, and, you know, it's not just for, for Nikon photographers. Anybody could uh, download it if they have access to an iPhone. So, and it's free, so really there's nothing to lose. You know, I, one of the things I'd love to see, if, if they're going to make an app, 
I guess all I'd like all I have to say is why don't we get a uh, an app that lets us run the camera? Like I don't I really don't care about I mean I I don't mean to be mean. <laughs> but I You're I get mean. I get frustrated when I see that they 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 went through all this trouble to build an app and they're not why can't they just link these up what what I really want to be able to do is run my camera from my iPhone. You know, be able to preview it, be able to, you know, um be able to have all the controls that I would normally have on my phone on my iPhone and the perfect company to do that would be one of the camera companies. I mean, there's third-party people that are kind of doing these in-betweens and out out, you know, but if these guys are going to make an app um, you know, it would be great to have an app to allow us I, to control I, I, their I camera. I agree, but I don't, I, you know, this is something that was probably put together by the marketing department. It's not a high-tech thing. This is really an online magazine, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I, so I think what you're seeing here, I mean, the real question is sort of why do you have to make an app? Why doesn't, isn't there just an easy way to read online magazines on on the iPhone? But I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a marketing tool that raises brand awareness for Nikon. It probably, you know, wouldn't surprise me if there doesn't end up showing uh, at some point, other sponsors or advertisers could even show up in this sort of thing. Uh, I, I agree; it'd be nice to have an icon app, but I think it's just a totally different beast. It, I'm sure it is, but it's just I'm just really blown away that these guys haven't started building Android apps and iPod apps. I mean, and, and I mean, and iPhone apps. Uh, it just it's it it, it seems it, like it's so good. If they want to get brand it, awareness, and you know, and it, and given that they have control of both ends, this would cost them a tiny amount of money. One pay the one page ad that they run in. Uh, you know, photographer or whatever, you know, uh, you know, would pay for building an app that would control the cam- camera. Yeah. I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, engineering and, and stuff that involves the hardware, um, you know, most of these big companies are extremely protective over that stuff and, and well, they, they only want they, to release things. They have SDKs. I mean, the thing is, is that they already have a way to interface with the cameras. So the thing is not, they're not, they're not changing anything that the cameras already have. They already have it. It's just that the easiest, com- the best company to do this would be them. And if they're not, they need to find somebody that's gonna, that's gonna do it. You know, um, yeah. you know that's. Yeah, you, but you say that, Alex. But how how often do you use uh, Canon or Nikon's uh, tools for doing post processing? No, I don't no, use. I don't use it very often, but they they want to turn that into some kind of business, and and for you know they could. Charge I don't think it. they should. That's my point. I I think that uh, you know asking a camera company to become a software manufacturer is not necessarily the right thing to do. I'd rather they're just putting out better and better cameras and make sure it's open enough that somebody whose expertise is in that area yeah. uh, can can focus on this even better. Yeah, I I understand your frustration, Alex, but I I, I guess I kind of agree with with Ron here. I mean, this is is more of a marketing situation, um, you know, for for photographers to kind of, uh, you know, look at images and and get some tips. Uh, I I think that, you know, for something that you're describing, it's probably going to be the third party people that do it. I I would be surprised if if they were to 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 do that. It it just their track record doesn't show that it'd be something that well, they, they would do. You know, there's I think both companies have at some point in time built a capture utility for. Mac and PC. Uh, I know that there's the you know Nikon had a Nik- the capture program, you know. So they've they've done that. But the thing the problem is is that it's just a you know you don't in the field <laughs> you don't want to be dealing with your laptop. I mean I think that's the sure. that's the issue. And I I just think it's a huge opportunity. It's it's one that you know we hope to take advantage of if no one else does. And I just haven't gotten we haven't gotten enough. Uh, uh, we're so busy with other things at the moment, we haven't done it. But it's just something that we need so badly um, is to have uh, an iPhone or – I mean, I, it would be enough for me to buy – I would buy an Android phone just if, I, if it was just yeah, running it. Yeah, on, on the iPhone isn't part of the issue that there's still not good access to the, the control port coming out of it. 
you know, everything I've seen so far has required you to have some sort of tethering over the network, over Wi-Fi, to some other device that has a hardware connection. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, it's, it's available. I mean, it's something that someone, I mean, but it, once again, it's something that a, can, a company like Canon or Nikon could easily talk I'm to. I'm not sure they can though. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know of any device that plugs into, you know, the port on the iPhone. Yeah. Apple, you Apple actually hardware. showed, uh, devices doing that. That was part of the three O update. So the three O, um, when they, uh, Apple showed, um, them plugging into a, uh, um, uh, blood pressure unit directly. Okay. Not through okay. Wi-Fi. Uh, and Apple talked about making that more available. And it would be very hard for a small company to do that and much easier for a large company like Canon or Nikon to, um, to sort that out. And I just think it would be, it'd be great press for, um, you know, for a lot of uh, – for Apple, for Canon, for Nikon. I'm just proselytizing at the moment. I just feel well, like – I just cannot believe that if we had more time, you know, I would get to it. Um, you know, it just – I cannot believe someone hasn't built a strong – Direct iPhone connection with these cameras. Yep. Anyway, I'm with you. I want it. To. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting they feisty about it. I don't want to have to. I don't want to have to write it. Uh, but but you know, I feel like you know we're going to have to put programming resources to it because we need it. You know, and that's the. I think that's the the bottom line. Now, uh, also in the news, um, Phase One uh, uh, releases Capture One uh, Five Pro. Now, this is uh, a raw converter and workflow application. Um, uh, with the broadest tethered shooting support. So speaking of tethered shooting support, uh, it's not only for the Phase 1 digital backs, but also for DSLRs from Canon and Nikon. Um, so this is kind of a, a very um, overall capture program that you can that you can use. So check that out. And then also, Steve, Steve also posted this. Thanks uh, for building up the news a little bit, Steve. The um, commercial photographers are on the list uh, of 15 stressful jobs that pay badly. So, um, Steve, can you... Can you tell us what you think of this? Um, well, I mean, you know, the fact remains that certainly some commercial photographers uh, do very well. Although, um, and we've talked about it before, when Annie Leibovitz was recently in the news being $24 million in the red, uh, if she's not making money or if she's in, in poor economic shape, there's really no hope for the rest of us. But um, this was um, a CNNMoney.com um, article that was posted and they said the median pay for commercial photographers is $43,600, which is less than the, 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 the day rate that uh, Annie Leibovitz charges for advertising. Um, but 100% of the commercial photographers uh, talked to describe their jobs as stressful. Um, well, I think, now, that, I I think that doesn't – don't you think that comes from the, the, the fact that when you're shooting, you know, oftentimes that's the only time you're going to get to take that photo? Oh, yeah, no question. And I think that, you know, there's a lesson here for those of us that love photography and have a passion for it. And be careful what you ask for, those TWIP listeners that maybe someday hope to uh, make a living at this because, you know, it it kind of changes things. And there's different pressures put on you and it even affects your shooting because maybe you're not going to take chances as much and, and that will result in, in images that maybe aren't as strong. So, I mean, there's something to be said for loving photography and not having to do it because that just keeps the the love alive. I think. What do you yeah, think, Ron? I, I think well, I think any any job that uh, you know ha- has a strong artistic component to it, you run the risk of because a lot of people want to do it. You run the risk of it not being a terribly profitable job. You know, you look at the chart. You know, and we should link to this article because it actually has a chart for a variety of different types of photographers. But you know, the lowest is. Median salary for a fine art photography is like twenty thousand dollars a year. Uh, mm. Clearly, <laughs> you're doing it for love at that point. 
Uh, yeah, you know, and, nature and, photographers are also very low kind of thing. You know, and, those, and those are the ones who, you know, yeah, I mean, how many times have you heard, God, wouldn't it be great if I could just go out and, you know, travel and, and shoot nature and uh, wildlife and landscapes for a living? Uh, well, and and yeah, think, it would be great, but you're not going to get paid a lot doing it. Well, I think that also, I think one of the challenges is, is that this is a different market uh, than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And I think that uh, oftentimes, you know, this happens to almost every industry. I mean, I think we're seeing this in the computer graphics industry where – uh, what used to be a solid fifty, sixty, seventy hour, uh, seventy dollars an hour uh, work uh, has really dropped uh, dramatically, just because there's a lot more people doing it. Um, yep. You know, and, and a lot more people in a lot of different countries doing it. Um, that just put a lot of uh, downward pressure on what it takes. And and the problem with photography is is that. There are so many people doing it. Now, a lot of them, it's, I think the cream still rises to the top, and I think there's an opportunity to um, still make money doing this. But I think that it does become more challenging because to do mediocre, not mediocre, middle middle ground work, the everyday take photos, it seems like that is something that there's just a lot of people gaping to do. Now, if you get really at the top of your game in any industry, it seems like you can still make a good living. Uh, would you agree, Steve? Yeah, no, 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 no question. And, you know, if you look at this article further, you'll find out that uh, some of the other jobs that were included include uh, parole officer, social worker, uh, <laughs> special events coordinator, fundraisers, which, you know, in this economy is difficult. But interestingly, um, you know, there's percentages who said their job was stressful, but I don't think um, there was any higher than 100% that commercial <laughs> photographers uh, listed as being being stressful. So. Right. We've got some uh, we've got some more news uh, right after uh, after this, but we want to thank, of course, uh, Squarespace.com. Uh, of course, Squarespace is an easy to you easy to use UI for creating and managing a website or blog, um, optimized for both beginners and uh, CSS experts. And of course, there's hundreds of design templates to choose from, and you can uh, customize any of these designs to fit your need. You know, and and we use we're using Squarespace a ton, as most people know. Twiplog, of course, is on Squarespace. Uh, uh, we are doing a bunch of new front end stuff for Pixel core and uh and for dv garage and uh, that's all done we're doing in squarespace i just love the fact that i can control the content without having to uh, make a request of a coder every single time we want to make a change um and if i don't like the colors or if we're talking to to um we're talking about colors we can just i can just open up as administrator and change them and then email someone and say that's what i was thinking <laughs> and um it's just really you know i've stopped designing sites in photoshop which is what i used to do and really moved to just designing them in squarespace um because i know that i just know that they'll work that way um, anyway, if you want to get um, a free trial, go to squarespace.com slash TWIP. That's squarespace.com slash T-W-I-P. You don't need a credit card. Uh, you just need to try to build the site. Of course, if you want your own URL, uh, you know, that's not Squarespace dot, you know, whatever, uh, then you'll need to, to buy it. And you can get 10% off if you use the offer code T-W-I-P. So once again, go to squarespace.com slash TWIP. And, um, and so now we have uh, more uh, uh, news here. This is submitted by Ron. Ron, can you tell us a little about, about this zooming video camera? Uh, yeah, this is almost a little throwaway, but I just found it kind of amusing. It goes back to exactly what we were talking about before of uh, people writing apps for the iPhone and doing crazy things. This is uh, a, a camera, I guess you'd call it a, a body that your your iPhone slips into. It's called the Owly, O-W-L-E, uh, it's kind of hacky, but it's kind of interesting. It's basically a, a device that you know, gives you a better grip on your iPhone. Uh, it puts a better lens in front of the existing sensor, uh, includes a microphone. It's primarily designed to turn your iPhone into a better video camera. 
um, you know, for doing video, but I think it probably would also be useful as a way to hold it for stills. But I think the real point here is apparently they have, uh, and I don't know if this is on jailbroken iPhones or not, but they do have, they now have tapped into the uh, connector like we were just talking about. Uh, and I think this is so that you can plug in, I think they've got it set up so you can plug in actual professional grade audio gear into this device. So it's called Owly. We'll put a link to it, but um, it's just kind of amusing to see sort of these. It is crazy looking. I, I have um, solutions. <laughs> it's yeah. That's that, I, I think that that takes the cake over over my uh, my little publicity stunt with the iPhone. <laughs> um, this is uh, it's it's amazing um, that you have this anyway. this little handle. I mean, it really is something that you could use. I'm not sure when you put this much into it, but it's only $99. So it's just adding to your phone. It's something you can have in your bag um, and something you could shoot a bit more. I, I love the, I love the idea. You know? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, and I think where this is going is important in the sense that you're going to be using the, these small handheld devices as the sort of brain, the processing power behind your equipment, but you bolt on, you know, whatever it takes to get what you want. So you know, what this when does you, is it still uses the iPhone's sensor, but it, you know what I would love to see is a device that has its own lens and sensor, and then just uses yeah. the iPhone as a user interface controller. When you look at the video that they created to demonstrate this, uh, there's probably a, a 400% difference between having this attachment on and you know doing a video, doing kind of a stand-up interview kind of thing versus the iPhone itself. Sound is much better, and the image is, is zoomed in. So, you know, if it works as it's demonstrated, it, it certainly would have its uses for, for people who, uh, you know, want to create their own little video YouTube things uh, in a more serious way than the iPhone will allow. Yeah, although you do have to look at the price point of, you, you know, this is a $100 device coupled with a several hundred dollar phone. And at what point? Well, but you but know, you but you, you also have is I mean you ha- a lot of people have the iPhone though, so it's not it really is just a hundred dollar extra on top of the iPhone. Uh, true, I, true. But at some point, you know, if you're going to do this with any sort of regularity, it seems like you want the right tool for the right job. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, jumping to the uh, jumping to the poll here. Um, we ha- we asked people. Uh, about TWIP interviews. Uh, do you prefer them to be uh, in the show or as a separate audio feed? Pretty split. So um, This it, isn't it, helpful, people. <laughs> Make up your mind! Uh, so if you give us said, 50-50. Uh, the, the, the winner was, I like them to be where they are now, uh, uh, in the middle uh, of the existing show, and that's 53%. Um, and, uh, and, then this, and then I would like to have a separate main show and an interview as uh, two different downloads was 47%. Mm. So it was it very looks, close. Looks like the, it looks like the election results from 2008, doesn't it? It's really close. Yeah, yeah, you know. So, it's, so anyway, so that's something. If, if uh, our, next, uh, our next poll is uh, if um, uh, what is your pot, what, what's your post-processing app preference? So this is – we've got a lot of choices here. Uh, Lightroom, Aperture, Bridge, iPhoto, Capture NX, Photoshop, or some combination of the above, which I think is going to be a big one, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and, uh, of course, none of the above, which um, – and then other. So you can type one in if you want. Um, so let us know uh, which one of these uh, is your uh, post-processing uh, uh, preference. And uh, and we'll go from there. I I don't, I don't think we left anything out. I mean, there's there's a lot of the smaller uh, Mac ones that um, that I think are are building up. I think there's uh, Acorn and um, and uh, 
want to say photo magic, but it's not photo magic. It's, uh, um, but, but there's a, um, you know what I'm talking about? It's another, it's, yeah. it's another well, fa- phase one that we brought, you know, we mentioned earlier in the news and Bibble is another one that, right. uh, there's too many of them. I mean, there's a lot so, of them. There's, there you know, the, there's kind of like the big three, I think, which are the, well, I mean, I think the big four, I guess, which is Lightroom, Aperture, iPhoto, and Photoshop. I think that's probably, when we look at the reality of it, uh, that's probably 90% of the market right there. Would you guys agree? It'd be interesting to see. I mean, I, I do agree. I'm sure that that is the case. I suspect these days, you know, most people are using, well, you know, the other one that's not included on here that we probably should include, maybe we can update this, would be something like Picasa. Right. You know, yep. and that's that's a, a huge one on the PC. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if that doesn't end up being uh, one of the top ones. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, we've got a we've got a great interview coming up here. We just want to pop in real quick and thank uh, our other sponsor, Audible dot com. Uh, today's broadcast, of course, is brought to you by Audible dot com. It's a leading provider of spoken world entertainment. Um, Audible has over fifty thousand titles to choose from, and um, and. I, I, I have to say, I don't know whether I recommended this on the la- on Twip or Twim, but I got to re-recommend it if I haven't. I've been listening to this this book called Glass Castle. The Glass Castle. Have you guys heard this? No. This book? And I can't think of the author at the moment. But if you search Glass Castle, it is a it's a woman who I believe is on C- CNBC, and she just had a very um, rough childhood, <laughs> and um, was it's a memoir, but from her kind of her childhood days um, that are. Uh, uh, it's just an incredible, uh, it's told by like a, you know, by a kid kind of just their observation of it. Uh, not a lot of drama about it, but you know, things catching on fire, her catching on fire, her falling out of cars, her, you know, all this other stuff. And it's just, I don't know why I find it. So it's, you know, interesting and, and, uh, intense all at the same time. So anyway, the glass castle is the, is what I would, uh, is going to be what I suggest, um, you know, give it a shot. Uh, and you can go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free audiobook of your choice. If you don't like that, go find something else. If you haven't done this after hearing all these times we've talked about audible podcasts, uh, you're crazy. So, um, audiblepodcast.com slash T W I P. And now we're going to jump into, uh, our guest segment. Um, this is, uh, this is a, uh, Interview that 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 Frederick did. Um, Rich Leg, uh, aka the Leg Net, uh, uh, is on Twitter. Um, Leg Net is is what his following is on Twitter, and it's he is a uh, full time and exclusive iStock Photo contributor based in Salt Lake City, Utah. The uh, words "full time" are key here, as he is near the top of the heap when it comes to folks making their sole living from "quote unquote" microstock photography. Uh, in this interview, uh, Rich is going to give us a glimpse of his path uh, to success uh, working with iStock Photo. And um, anyway, so Frederick's going to do that right now. I'm here with Rich Leg, also known on Twitter as Legnet. <laughs> um, so follow him there. Uh, I was exposed to Rich through Nicole Young, also known as Nicole on Twitter. Um, she's an iStock photographer or a contributor to iStock, mm-hmm. and turns out that Rich is also, and he's agreed to sit down with me and explain how he's enjoyed some success that he's having and maybe give some tips and tricks to people that are not having success on iStock and maybe what they can do to get success. So, okay. Rich, thank you for coming on this week in photography. Well, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So let, let's let's kick it off. So how long have you been shooting? How long have you been a quote, unquote, hold, holding up quote fingers, a professional photographer? Well, there's two different stages in my life doing it. Mm-hmm. I worked as a studio photographer in the second half of the 80s uh, in Alaska where I grew up. 
And that was the typical wedding business, uh, wedding portraits, senior portraits, school pictures, family pictures, that. Did that, left that, um, left the industry for about 10 plus years uh, in the early 90s because I, um, quite frankly, wasn't making enough money to really support my family. And then uh, came back in, and I'll say, holding up those, those finger quotes you did, a quote-unquote professional photographer. I've been doing it full-time with it being my primary, if not almost my only source of income, since uh, right now, since about mid-2007. Okay, mid-2007. So primary source of income. Nothing else? Photography is paying the bills. Photography has been paying the bills, yes, since wow. the end of 07. How does that feel? I mean, how does it feel to be <laughs> to not have a boss? Uh, it, it feels really cool when you're out talking to people and you say, yes, I am a professional photographer. But <laughs> and then in the middle of the night when you wake up at 3 in the morning and, and you know your eyes pop wide open saying, oh, my gosh, I'm supporting myself doing this, yeah. uh, is kind of scary. But it's been... Um, it's been great. It really is. The not having a boss thing. I did a, you know, a dozen years or so in the corporate life. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, doing what I'm doing now where I answer to myself is just a huge blessing. And, but I'm also blessed to have had the corporate experience to be able to put together the business plan that got me to where I am today. Sure. And it will help you appreciate not being in corporate America. Absolutely. <laughs> so like, talk a little bit about the business itself. So iStock Photo or MicroStock, as people call it. Um, for the folks that may not know what iStock is, define what a microstock type company like iStock is okay. and what, what their business proposition is. Uh, it, it happened in early 2000s when microstock came on the scene. And, you know, traditional stock agencies, uh, you know, your price per license was much higher. And some people will confuse the uh, royalty-free with rights managed and be thinking that, uh, you know, think that the royalty-free is microstock. When no, uh, your, your typical... You know, traditional agencies have both royalty-free and rights-managed and editorial divisions. So MicroStock came on, and they, basically a micropayment, meaning you know where, a, where an image might start with a licensing fee of two hundred fifty to three hundred dollars, they came on the scene with licensing fees of uh, you know we'll go gasp one dollar, and doing that. Actually, a lot of the sites started with you know basically artists sharing their images with with zero licensing fees, and that's where MicroStock and then iStock Photo grew out of that. Yeah. Okay. And now, in terms of people that are actually making a living from mm-hmm. Microsoft and, and iStock type businesses, what, what does that picture look like? That is picture it, looks is it like a giant crowd of people that are just raking in the dough, or <laughs> how does that go? Uh, the last number I heard, and there's no hard numbers that are shared um, you know, you know, with the public that much, but the last one I saw from Kelly Thompson, the, the chief operating officer of iStock, said there was uh, roughly 85,000 contributors on iStock Photo. Now, iStock Photo is the largest of the, uh, quote, you know, microstock sites. Mm-hmm. So out of those 85,000, you know, when I last looked on, a, uh, on a, you know, an off-site charting thing, I was just right just over in the top, just over 100 on uh, the ranking of where I was on total sales for everybody on the site. Mm-hmm. So that tells you, and I look at it and I say, I know how much I sell. Um, there's a lot of people making a little bit of money, mm-hmm. um, and then there's a few people, and I don't know a hard number on this, maybe a few hundred at, at most, uh, making career money for it. Got it, got it. So this is not the type of business, so just to be clear, so the, a lot of people have the misconception or conception that they can go get a cool camera, get a digital SLR, mm-hmm. throw it on automatic, and go on a photo walk somewhere, take some pictures and upload them, and start raking in money. So... 
is is there some truth to that, or what? I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll give you two on? examples. Then. <laughs> you know, I, I came back in, and I had another company that was fairly successful. Uh, that was my own company, a non-photography company, and it was in the real estate industry. And so I came back into serious photography while doing that. So I joined iStock as you know the guy with the camera in his car, uh, doing you know, the, cam- the pictures where they came from. Mm-hmm. And I have a couple of really successful images in my portfolio that came out of that type of photography, but those are exceptions. When I analyzed the business and, and created my business plan, and really, and this was in the beginning of 2007, set out and said, okay, 2007 is my year to build the portfolio, whereas a, a year from now at that point, you know, I can make a living doing this. And it was at that stage where I began looking at it and saying, okay, uh, the little grab shot as you're driving down the road and say, oh, that's an interesting scene. Look at that pretty tree. You know, you might make money with those images, but the ones that, for me, that turned the point was when I, number one, started planning my shoots, putting production value in, uh, staging the situation, paying my models, bringing people in, and doing a regular production. Those photo shoots uh, are the images that begin making money, and that's that was the kind of the metamorphosis from the hobbyist doing it as a hobby, even though I had been professional in my past, uh, into doing this as a full-time stock photographer. So that makes that makes a shot, a shoot, more of an investment in the terms it, it so you're saying this is more of a, a career. When you're thinking of, of making money through iStock, it's a career move, right? Yes. So it's not, okay, I'm just going to go do this in the weekend and take some pictures of some flowers or whatever. <laughs> um, you are... You're you're doing full on production, so you you have a location. You've got models there, presumably makeup artists and yeah. all that stuff going on. And you're the photographer and in, in the center of the action, directing everything. And, and it's kind of the um, the small little sidewalk shop proprietor is kind of the way I look at it. You know, there'll be the big department store on the end that has the all the different departments: you have their sales department, their marketing department, the administration, the janitorial, all this. And you come to the little sidewalk shop. The little shop owner, and you know, he's sweeping the floor, he's doing the advertising, he's uh, you know, greeting the customers, and I'm that guy in the stock business, and that I'm doing the majority of it myself. You know, the first few times, well, I won't even say that. I say every time when I'm planning a shoot and I'm putting a budget together, you know, I'm doing it on, on you know, a shoestring budget comparable to the big guys. Yeah. You know, a few hundred dollars for a photo shoot, and I'm writing these checks based on okay, let's. You know, hope and trust that I can create images that's going to give me the uh, the payback on that. But that's what I see. But I am the guy doing doing everything now. I have branched off and worked with. You know, I have a shoot coordinator I work with now that helps get location and models, uh, a contract employee for me, and I've got you know other people that help with stuff. I get other photographers. Uh, Nicole has helped. <laughs> She's a great help when she comes out. Uh, but I've got some other photographers that you know are willing to come and you know for either little or no money come assist on shoots yeah. and it's just a great help but I am the guy still operating on a shoestring budget because uh, you know unlike the hobbyist that's making money on you know selling their images on on a stock site where they can you know make $200 in a month and maybe put the $200 back into camera gear or something you know every every dollar I look at spending is an expenditure in my company and I have to justify that because this is you know I'm looking for the long-term viability of my company to then employ me yeah so there's, it's no secret that traditional stock photographers look at micro stock photographers with you know stink eye. Yeah, you know? I, I've been I've been looked at a little <laughs> bit, and sometimes I thought it was about the way I dress. But no, it's. Uh, <laughs> but, but I will say this: is, is we're seeing 
you know, in the last 12 months, we're seeing a huge transition, I will say, from being on the, on the microstock site. You know, we're sitting here at Photoshop World, and the respect uh, that, that I have uh, received and in talking to people, high up people, is changed from what we saw one to two years ago. Uh, we, we both went to a big iStock event last night, mm-hmm. and, and it was great to see high up people in the industry coming to that event and, and treating iStock with respect. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say we are seeing a change here iStock in the last six months has rolled out their VETA collection, which licensing on those images start at between $20 and $30 for a small image for a license on up to about $150. And that's your premium high content, uh, I'm sorry, high production value images. You know, roughly 1% of my portfolio is is VETA. So we've seen that. And the other thing that's uh, still being rolled out is uh, Getty Images is is inviting iStock photographers to shoot editorial. There's a test Getty, program. Getty owns. Oh yeah, iStock. Getty is uh, is iStock's parent company, and Getty is the traditional. Everybody, you know, most people know the traditional stock agency. They are inviting iStock photographers, a select few on the pilot program, which will then branch out to shoot editorial mm-hmm. for Getty. Mm-hmm. And they are also rolling out a rights managed program, where they're just doing that the first part of 2010. So we are seeing iStock stepping up as far as, I almost say it's, you know, there's microstock and iStock shifting towards almost a mid-tier, I, I would say, on the pricing with what I see. I've even seen that with my own royalties, uh, you know, where we're seeing the prices come up. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because there are competitors out there that are, are undercutting the iStock price. And I will, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fanboy, but I will tell you, you know, I make my living on iStock. Uh, you know, iStock's inspection and, and their quality is, is top-notch. Yeah. So... What about the uh, the idea that you know you're gonna like I was saying earlier, you know, in terms of gear, being able to just jump into this business with <laughs> just you know you may go buy a Nikon D90 or you know a Canon whatever and jump in and call yourself a photographer, which I'm, I'm sure some people could do that. But what what do you think is the necessary bits of gear and kit that someone needs to have okay. in order to jump in? You know, for me, I've got I've got some images that are really good selling. I've got a, um, you know, two of them that, that come to my mind, which are the uh, atypical images for my portfolio. There's a shot of a windy road I took on vacation in, in 2007 that has sold quite well, mm-hmm. and shot with a Canon 30D. Um, you know, just a shot, pulled the car over and took a picture. That's a rare thing. Uh, you know, and I've got a flower picture that has sold remarkably well, and I took it at a drive-through at a taco place. You know, I'm embarrassed to say, I grabbed the camera and took it. But the majority of my stuff is done with creative lighting, either reflector or, um, you know, I, I live with soft boxes. You know, in that in my shoots, and I say if someone were coming in, you know, even if they they jumped on, and I use, uh, you know, uh, white lightning lights, you know, so someone goes on and gets the the little the little sibling of those, some alien bees, spends uh, five six hundred dollars on a couple alien bees. You know, knowing how to light it, and that's a, you know, I still feel, you know, every shoot, I'm growing on my lighting experience. But so, coming back to your question, I guess I took it off a little bit, was, you know, a, a good digital SLR mm-hmm. and uh, an understanding of lighting is more important to me than the actual gear they're using. Yeah. You know, they can buy some cheap uh, internet lights for a couple hundred dollars and get great results. Yeah. But if they, they need to understand what they're doing at the lighting. There's some fantastic photographers doing great work, you know, using a $50 reflector. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's the you old... Have to understand the, you have to understand the, the why and the what behind the how. 
I guess mm -hmm. that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And with cameras, the, the funny thing is with cameras changing, and we're sitting here and, and interviewing, and sitting on the table is my Canon G7, mm -hmm. and I've got a couple pictures of my stock portfolio that have, that have sold really well. Yeah. Uh, I've got a picture of an ice skater's feet, of all things, taken with a G7. But that is the rare exception. Yeah. Uh, for me, what you're really... you're uploading JPEG files, right? Part, we upload JPEG. I shoot everything 100% raw. The last step, absolutely the last step, is, is converting that down as an 8-bit JPEG and saving it okay. as a 12-quality and, and uploading that. In software? Uh, in software. My, my workflow was for, uh, you know, I've got over 50, about 5,400 images on iStock and uh, probably about 4,800 of those. My workflow was bridged to CS2, CS3, CS4 mm -hmm. as I upgraded. Um, but recently, within the last three months, I switched over to Lightroom. I'm now using Lightroom for my raw conversion and then editing in uh, CS4, Excellent. Photoshop CS4. Excellent. How's, the, how's that transition been for you? Fantastic. I, um, you know, as an iStock photographer, I live and die by the approval of my images, mm -hmm. meaning uh, my, my time is my asset. And if I spend time on images and have those images rejected, you know, it's, it's time that I've lost. Yeah. And so I'm really, I have a 90 plus percent lifetime acceptance on the site. Uh, any given month, I'm 98 to 99 percent accepted. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm always scared to change my workflow. Yeah. Uh, I was scared when I switched to the 5D Mark II and Photoshop CS4 on the same week. Uh, now switching to Lightroom, it was real concern. I said, you know, I'm going to give myself 30 days to see. Uh, actually, once I started using that develop module on Lightroom for my raw conversion, after I, I, I told Nicole, after about six days, I um, I can't see going back. Yeah. I'm really become a fan of Lightroom in a short short period it's of time. A lot of power in that development. And I, and I really haven't got into the organizational aspects of it yet. I'm really you're just, doing all your keywording and metadata and all that stuff in I'm, Lightroom. I'm not doing the keywording in Lightroom yet oh. because I'm doing my keywording still in a, in a third party open source program called Deep Meta. Mm -hmm. Uh, for iStock. Right. The, the, the downfall of that is my keywords are not embedded in my metadata of my images. Mm. They're coming up on a, a They need a card. deep meta Lightroom plugin. Oh, uh, we're going to see. We're yeah. going to see that, that continued growth. So I don't know if you've, know, you've heard about this, but I heard, a, uh, not a rumor, but I heard some news a while back that Getty Images was working with Yahoo to license images from select photographers on Flickr. Mm -hmm. Do you know about that? Anybody? I know about it. I, yeah. the, the irony is, um, is for me, as I, I've got a fairly active uh, Flickr account. I use Flickr for hosting my, my blog images. We use it for the, um, the photography group I'm involved with. We use Flickr. So um, I, had to, I had to laugh when I got my invite. I got my invite from Getty Images, to, and, and they had selected some images from my uh, Flickr portfolio that they invited me to sell through Getty Images. Now, I'm also a Getty contributor. I only have, uh, I have less than 10 images in my Getty portfolio, but through my uh, iStock diamond level, I was offered a Getty contract. I just haven't really begun to use it, but I do have a Getty contract. Um, but I got invited to uh, submit images, and all of the images that they invited me to submit were already images that were active on iStock. Yeah. And the reason they were on my Flickr account is because I had low-res samples up there to be used for blog examples. Gotcha. So um, there is a little bit of maybe the left hand not talking to the right hand on that. But but it's fine. I, I'm anxious to see the results or excited to see the results more appropriately. You don't feel like it's a threat? I don't feel it's a threat at all. Yeah. I really don't. I see that uh, you know there's some fairly prolific uh, Flickr users out there, mm -hmm. successful images, uh, successful photographers that are having their images up there. I don't know how much they're selling. Uh, I really don't feel it's something, though, that's going to affect me. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a different type of image. Yeah. 
And the, it depends the, on how you use it, yeah. You know, the big thing for, for the Microstock side, and it's, there's been a little bit of a misconception over the years that is if a designer steps in and says, I want to buy an image, and maybe they're working for a, um, you know, let's say a large, one of the big three accounting firms, something really, a, a large company, mm -hmm. and they want to come in and, and they're doing an ad campaign. Yeah. And they were, you know, there's been talk I've heard of, you know, maybe afraid to use a Microstock because of the legal ramifications. You know, and that's the thing I would see. We look at the Virgin... Uh, the Virgin Airlines ad they did with the used a Flickr picture a few years ago, mm -hmm. and it was not properly properly released. You know, it was a Creative Commons licensed, but the girl was under eighteen, and there was no model release signed, and they got in some real trouble. Yeah. And that's what I look at with um, with iStock, is knowing what we go through with the model releases, and that's that is the biggest thing in having Getty behind iStock, that I think even grabbing a Flickr image that if you are uh, that person buying images for that large corporation, you want some some guarantee that number one, everybody in that in that image is model release. Mm -hmm. That there's a model release there, right. and with that, that's why iStock within the last month rolled out the guarantee where every image has a, uh, a a guarantee on it. You know, basically like an insurance policy saying if you are sued for using, you know, if you if you receive uh, legal notification that you're using an image or there's an unreleased model or something, iStock stepping in and giving you a base level of insurance with the option when you license the image, you can option to purchase up to a, uh, I don't remember the exact amount, but I think it's up to $200,000 worth of liability insurance for that picture. Oh, wow. But that's the big thing that we've seen, you know, as, as Microstock has grown up over the last seven, eight years, you know, we, we've watched it go from... You know, you know, hobbyist photographer designers sharing images. That, yeah, yeah, you know, arguably yes, there were probably images that did not have proper model releases in the early days of Microsoft. Right. But now this is a this is a major business, and like every major business, as contributors, we're always seeing you know, a little more paperwork yeah. because I have to have you know model releases documented on every shoot. And that, that's my next question. So what's what's your flow? Take me through that. If you're you know you set up a shoot. And you know, you're you're on a job. You know, say, say you set up a, sh a, a shoot in a diner, and mm -hmm. all the models in the in the diner are yours. Um, you you accomplish the photography. You're done. It's on your card. You get back. You import everything in the Lightroom, and you're, you've done your deep meta everything. What happens from that point? And do you <laughs> have you contacted all of those models and had them sign before they show up, okay. or do you have to do it after the fact? How does that go? I'll, I'll walk you through mine personally. Okay. Um, mine personally is when I am on a shoot, I have another person generally working with me. I did a shoot in a, coincidentally enough, in a fast food restaurant in earlier this year. And I brought in, it was before hours, and I brought in 15 models. Now, before I start pulling the trigger, I have a person there that as they're coming in the door, we're verifying, here's the release. And this one I had teenagers, so I have parents signing releases because they're under 18. Mm -hmm. But I have releases on every person. Next thing I'm doing before I'm, I'm getting shooting is every time I'm placing a model in the scene, I am shooting, okay, if Frederick, if you're one of my models, right before I place you in the scene, you walk up to the camera, you hold up your model release, and I take a picture of you holding your model release. Now, I'd like to so say that's, that's... my next question. How do you tie <laughs> one to the other? I, yeah. I would love to tell you that's because of my great, you know, I want to be the, you know, my, my good workflow on making sure legally protected. Yeah. That's the side benefit. The big benefit is, you know, six days later when I'm editing images and I can't remember who is who, I pull up those files to match names to faces. I thought you were going to say white balancing. Yeah. For, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> but, but we do that. So I, I'm doing that with the releases. Um, so that's it. I've got the releases. I do the shoot. Mm -hmm. And then I have the, uh, you know, a little bit of the head home uh, where I have my home office. I do the editing 
with the compact flashcards. And it's the, um, you know, like, like our friend Alex says, if it doesn't exist in three places, it doesn't exist. Yeah. So it kind of scares me a little bit on that uh, until, I get the images, until I get the images duplicated. Mm-hmm. But uh, take them to the backup on it. And then when I get to the editing, I, you know, I can tell you the workflow I do there. Sure. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Oh, what I do is, uh, well, right now I put them in, you know, I import them with Lightroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lightroom is, uh, you know, obviously I'm setting up, I did this with Bridge too, embedding my uh, metadata in every one of the images mm-hmm. with my copyright information. Right. Uh, and then I go through the images and I will generally give myself a little bit of a break to get the shoot completely fresh. I look at them to make sure things came out so, okay. So they come into Lightroom first yes. and you add basic metadata to them, copyright in the information on, on import, in the import dialog. And then later you're you're adding your deep meta my categorization, keywords, yeah. your keywords for iStock. I'm embedding my copyright information. Okay. When they are coming in, it's embedding copyright, name, phone number, website. And they uh, don't get tagged with the keywords until they get... Pumped. Correct. Okay, gotcha. Correct. Okay. So now I have the images... Now I will go through the images, and I do Q iterations, which means, you know, I'll go through once, and I'll do my picks. I'll just do a cursory, not looking for duplicates, just looking through and doing picks, saying which images are images that I feel have potential to be good stock images. Mm -hmm. Typical photo shoot, um, let's say I shoot 250 images, uh, about one in five. I'll probably come out with about 50 Mm-hmm. Then I will give myself a break on those, usually a day or so, unless I'm really rushed to get them out. Mm-hmm. And I will go through and do at least one or two more Q iterations. And I'm going through and looking and saying, okay, well, I missed this one, but I like this one. And then usually the last time, then I'm, then I'm winding it down to the, the ones I want to begin editing. Mm-hmm. And then when I begin editing is when I will look in detail at, at you know, similar images. Let's say you're my model. I'm looking at you sitting at this table. And I've got three different shots that are very similar, but uh, you know, either any of them could be a good stock image. Then I'm pulling up, looking at them at 100 percent, looking at looking at the technical qualities mm-hmm. of the image, and selecting one image. Gotcha. But that's that's my process to get down to my editing badge. And are you using are you uh, in Lightroom using features like stacking and, yes. and that kind of stuff? Yes, Just I once am. you narrow it down to that set, stack them. I, I'm learning, and I, uh, you know, because I learned with CS2's bridge. Mm-hmm. So my workflow was a little bit of uh, simple at first, and that I was, you know, I'd go through and five star rate them. Mm-hmm. I would just give myself five stars, and then if they were maybe images, a four star, and I would mm-hmm. do that. Now I'm learning to use the more advanced features of Lightroom and doing the stacking and using the pick. Uh, and then, then I am also starring them and using color codes for where they are in the editing process. Very good. Very good. Okay. Um, one, uh, another question. So what sells in terms of iStock photography? And, what, or, and also a follow-on question to that would be what doesn't sell? Okay. You know, our good friend Nicole has a great selling picture of a cat. I think, I think iStock has the definitive collection of cat photos. <laughs> And I think we could probably stop now and have no more cat photos. Now, I'm, I've, got a little, I've got a little bias against cats, cats and flowers, but I have to laugh that I have a, I have a very successful image of a yellow flower. So, uh, but that's, okay, but seriously, we want to look, and for, for me, what started selling? And everybody's got their different niche. You know, you look at a very successful iStock photographer, Kelly Klein, mm-hmm. and her food images are just incredible. She's a Seattle-based photographer. And that's her niche. That's her niche. Yeah, you look at her doing the food images. You look at, uh, there's people with macro that does incredible stuff. Landscape's a tough one. 
Mm-hmm. Landscape's a tough one because in order, there's so many really good landscape photographers and out there. And it doesn't change much. And yeah, it's, it's there. <laughs> so for me, I'll tell you what, what successful for me is, and I look at this, is my goal when I shoot an image is I want a, a person that looks not like a model, but a person that looks like a real person that you might see at your local grocery store. Mm-hmm. Albeit an attractive person, uh, but I, I'm looking for people in real life scenarios looking like real people. Mm-hmm. And I give an example. I did a photo shoot um, this last summer. I did two different sessions in a dentist office. Mm-hmm. And my goal with that was to get people, you know, attractive people, but it looks like real people. A nice, I, I look for an, an age diversification and ethnic diversification. Mm-hmm. The, the latter one makes it a little difficult when I live in, in Utah. We'll just leave it at that. But I'm looking at that. But also I want it to be real. And for the dentist office, mm-hmm. the... Uh, the manager of the dentist's office, the office manager, actually stood there, and she used to was a former dental assistant, so she knew knew what they're doing. She stood beside me and helping me to make sure it was real, and on making sure that the instruments were held properly, that everything looked real. So I, even though I have models in there, I want it to look real. We've all, in whatever industry we've worked in, we've opened opened a magazine and seen an ad, and if you're a guitar player, you look and you say that. A real guitar player would never hold their guitar that way. Right. Or if you're a, a machine operator, you would say he would never do that. So I look for real-life people in real scenarios. And right. that's that's how I would just define... And that's, and that's what sells for you? That's what I would define what I do, yes. Okay, cool. All right, so what else defines you as a photographer? I mean, are you... You're, I know you're doing some outside of shooting things and giving back to the community sort of thing. So take me through that stuff, the <laughs> stuff that you do when you're not actually shooting for iStock. Okay, and there's actually there's there's an old old proverb that comes out of uh, that comes from long ago that, that I used in my real estate business that says, uh, you know, he who refreshes other, or it says a, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And bringing that in to photography, what that means for me is this: in that I am extremely blessed to have the uh, freedom that I have. And the time, and I believe that you know to do take take a passion that I do something that I am most passionate about as, as a vocation on this planet, and be able to do that and create a living. I feel blessed, and and if there's others out there that maybe need a little help getting getting to that next point with their love of photography, I want to be able to help that. And how are you helping? And with that, in 2007, I began. Uh, with two other bloggers, Ann Torrance and Brian Jones in Salt Lake City, photographer bloggers, we started Photo Walk in Utah. Mm-hmm. And it has been one of the most rewarding things I've, I've done in my life in that we have events. We've had over uh, 30 or 40 events. A typical event will have 60 to 80 people at it. And uh, I've begun teaching. We do free clinics uh, at the Salt Lake City Library. I do those every other month. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've, the most we've had is uh, 90-some people at a clinic. And giving back through that, and, and that's really the people who know me say I try to spend 20%, you know, this is my, my thing, spend 20% of my photographic time in non-revenue producing activities. Mm-hmm. And if that, means, if that means taking a picture of a, a, a local family's son receiving his Eagle Scout, which I did last Sunday, mm-hmm. you know, that was helping out a family in the neighborhood that wanted to document a really important part of their life, and I had a chance to do that. If it means that, if it means teaching a clinic, if it means sharing. Um, you know, by, by leading a photo walk or getting someone else, encourage someone else to be involved in leading a photo walk. That's what I look at. And I think, you know, regardless of what we do, you know, in our life, whatever, if we can give back a little bit of our time, we're going to, we're going to, 
it's going to be more rewarding for ourselves. And that's, I'm really kind of biased on that, but there's my, my opinion. That's awesome. So where, where can people go to find out more about you and the stuff that you're working on? Uh, my blog is, you know, you, you look at my blog like my mother does to see what I've been taking pictures of lately. <laughs> so it might be a you know, vacation photo if I'm in Las Vegas like I am this week, or mm-hmm. it might be my latest photo shoot. And that's at legnet.com. Legnet. L-E-G-G-N-E-T. Got it. Legnet.com. Mm-hmm. I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash legnet. Mm-hmm. You'll usually see me sharing links or where I'm at photographically. And uh, mm-hmm. and that's about it. I am on Flickr and Facebook, and they can find all those links off of my blog. Excellent. It's been a great interview and a great honor speaking with you. <laughs> thank you for taking I'm a big time. fan of TWIPS, so this is a big deal that I'm on here. Good, so good. Thank well, you. It's a, it's a mutual... It's a mutual thank you fest. All right. (laughs) Cool. Thanks a lot, Rich. I appreciate it. Thank you, Frederick. And there you go. It's a little quicker, you know, on the uh, on the live (laughs) show here. And uh, so um, uh, now we're going to jump into the uh, the uh, scheduled our questions. And so here's the first question that we have, and this is uh, for Ron. Um, uh, And this is coming from Jay uh, Bransfield. He said, "I am a Nikon shooter." and have been looking at the D700 and D3S cameras. Um, can you talk about 14-bit versus 12-bit file sizes and what people are doing in the real world? Uh, is there a greater dynamic range due to the larger file size? Thanks. Yeah, so uh, first thing, I mean, I guess I wouldn't necessarily characterize it. I mean, the reason you, you have that, that uh, greater bit depth is because the sensor is theoretically capable of capturing a larger dynamic range, capturing a bigger range from darks to lights, uh, and also just having a little bit more granularity in there. It's not the kind of thing where most of the time, really almost all the time, if you take a photo and don't do a whole lot to it and and look at it on your monitor, you're going to see any difference whatsoever. The reason you want the higher bit depth is if you're going to start doing stuff to the image, you're going to start to do image processing on it. Uh, You know, a great example would be if you shoot a, a... something you tend to overexpose or you shoot a shot where the sky is almost overexposed and you want to pull that back down to a nice blue color uh, and you do some sort of image processing on that. If you have a lower bit depth, the lower your bit depth is, the more likely you're going to start to see artifacts when you start doing heavy processing on it. So 14 bits is definitely a good thing. Most of the time it may not be necessary. I take it and I don't even really know, but I, I think that the, the these Nikon cameras you mentioned have the option of shooting at 12 or 14 bit. For me, it's kind of the same reason I shoot raw, and I would generally just say, you know, unless you're really running out of space or something, I would probably go ahead and shoot at the higher bit depth. Um, but realistically, you're not going to see a whole lot of difference unless you get into a situation where you're going to be doing a lot with the photo, a lot of post-processing on it. I will say that the, the big difference, of course, I, I don't know how much of a difference, something we should probably test, uh, between the 12 and 14-bit uh, I will say there's, I mean, for people out there shooting on, you know, JPEG, there's a massive difference <laughs> between JPEG and RAW. Um, sure. And, and I just constantly, I constantly run up against shots that I've taken that I just didn't know what I was going to do with them uh, when I looked at them uh, in the JPEG uh, version. And uh, when you look at the actual RAW version, it's just, you know, you have so much latitude. I, that's, I wouldn't buy a camera at this point that, uh, that I was really doing any kind of uh, shooting that I wanted to keep. You know, I have a lot of behind-the-scenes cameras that I use to shoot stuff that I uh, don't really care whether they have RAW or not. But, um, but for the, my real cameras, I mean, you just got to be shooting in RAW. Um, you know, we yeah, talk, but, uh, yeah. yeah, the point I'm making, though, I think, is that uh, people should understand that the difference between shooting 12-bit RAW versus 14-bit RAW 
is is very slight compared to the difference between right. shooting chase and shooting raw. No, it's clearly you should be shooting raw in almost uh, any situation where you think you're going to want to do something worthwhile with the image you're taking. Yeah, no, absolutely. So our next question is for Steve, and um, and this is um, from uh, Dave uh, <laughs> uh, Sweeduk. And uh, he said that um, he said my question is that I have uh, recently entered the quote unquote state of semi pro state with my photography, and I am starting to work with clients for portraits and as well as landscape photography for completely different sets of clients. Uh, one question I have uh, is: Do you have any tips and suggestions on resizing my digital files for print in various sizes, eight by ten, eleven by fourteen? I know that you can just crop, but there are times um, I am finding that, that, that there is. Um, that there is information in the whole frame and I don't, that I don't want to lose. The um, obvious answer would be to frame the shot with the crop in mind, but I have to think that there's, that it, there's another solution to getting prints um, the size as needed without cropping the image away too much. I shoot with a D300 in RAW all the time, and currently I'm using Photoshop Elements 8.0. Uh, I would uh, love to be able to uh, upgrade to the full Lightroom. So anyway, so um, Steve, do you have any input on cropping photos? Well, yeah, I guess um, when I saw this question and when I, you know, I think, I think uh, Dave is aware um, that most post-processing software will allow you to uh, crop to specific sizes very easily um, you know, and get the shape that you need so that there isn't any um, excess uh, image. At least you know exactly what you're going to get. But I thought about it, then I thought, like, in camera, is there a way to sort of figure out, you know, what an 8x10 and how much um, room it's going to take up? And I came across uh, a company called Cat's Eye Optics, who makes a variety of different uh, custom uh, focusing screens, including a rule, a rule of thirds screen, a grid screen, uh, architecture. But they have one that's got 8x10 crop lines, 5x7 crop lines. And, um, you know, various now, square, does this, does this for go, example. Does this go back on the back of the camera? No, no. This goes – this this replaces your um, uh, focusing screen. So for those Ooh. cameras that have different adjustable or interchangeable focusing screens, you can get a custom focusing screen that will show you what the 8 by 10 crop lines were, um, square format, whatever it is that you're looking for. They have – including panoramic. So they have a wide, wide variety – now, obviously, a very specialty item, but if you're concerned about it, as Dave seems to be, and maybe with your particular market, if eight by ten is is going to be the the shape that it's always going to you're always going to be using, it might be worthwhile investigating uh, putting this in your camera so you could in camera crop as as best you can and know that you're going to you know exactly what you're going to get on an eight by ten. So now, Steve, are, these are the, these are screens that sit over top of the mirror. Is that where they're going, or is yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, um, they make them for a variety of cameras, you know, Canon, Leica, Nikon, Olympus, Panasonic, whomever. And my understanding is uh, that, uh, you know, just like you would buy an accessory screen, a uh, focusing screen for your camera, um, you can uh, get one of these specifically for that purpose. That's very interesting. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been thinking about getting one. I know that they make some for the mirrors that is uh, has the old manual uh, circle, you know, circle with the two pieces that you can bring back together. Yeah, actually, right. this company stuff. does have uh, crosshair grid lines, one vertical grid line and one horiz- horizontal grid line. 
um, to help with alignment. Because I, I, I find that I find that a lot of times uh, there are just situations where I, I want to focus manually, you know, and especially. What's interesting is that that's that's become more the the case when I started shooting video with the cameras, um, because you know I want to manually focus it. A lot of times I don't want to leave it, you know, up to the computer to do that. But but it's hard to f- get that focus uh, accurately and quickly. And mm. uh, I've been looking for those uh, those mirrors. Yeah, well, you might want to you know check out this company. There's no question if you want to do a lot of manual focusing and your screen somehow is not performing in the way that you think it it could. Uh, you might want to look here just to to see if there Great. might be some options there for you. Fantastic. Um, and uh, our last question is uh, um, this is this is this is for Frederick, but he's not here, so I'm going to take uh, I'm going to take Frederick's. And um, uh, this is uh, this is from Harold Andrews, and he said I've heard uh, recently in one of your episodes a discussion about focus lock uh, using the function button, the AEL button, I think, uh, on my for my Nikon D90. Uh, but even after reading my manual, I don't understand uh, how to correctly utilize it. Uh, are you supposed to be able to uh, do a half press on the shutter button and then hit the function button to lock the focus and be able to release the function button, uh, compose, and then take the photo by pressing the shutter button again? Or do you have to hold the, the function button continuously? If so, it seems much easier to do just the half press technique. So I'm going to uh, give my input. I think all of us probably have some input because I think we all do this to some degree. Um, so what I have on on my uh, 5D and the, and the 70s is the is in the back I have a, a lock. Now what the, I don't do a half press on the on the front, and the idea is really to not have to do that. And the one problem is is that if you pick up my camera and you don't know what that is, uh, most people have a hard time using it because <laughs> I've turned it off on the front and I've I've dedicated it to the back. So so when I'm focusing, what I what I'm doing is is I I'll be working and I'll push push my thumb in and hold it to where I want it to be focused. So I, I just and you get used to it where you're just ro- I'm rocking back and forth where I just push it to focus it and let go and that's when it's it's always going to keep on locking that focus every time I push my thumb in and I have to hold my thumb but that allows me to frame on somebody and then reframe you know frame focus reframe and fire the button. And um in, in that process uh I find is a lot better than the half thing, you know, I don't want it to do that. I don't want it to think when I'm pushing the button. I want to know that it's locked and I want to hear it. I want to know it's locked. And then when I push the button, I know I just want to instantly grab whatever I had uh, there. And so that's, it's this kind of, and, and you can customize this in a lot of ways. You can still have the half work. You can have this work with it. You can, um, but I, I, my combination is I turn the, I turn the focusing operation off on the front and have the back one just able to, um, that's where I'm doing all my focusing. Uh, yeah. How do you guys if I can just ex- yeah, if I can ahead. expand on that, Alex, um, I've been using that for the last couple of years. And um, the reason being is when you set um, the autofocus button on the back of the camera, you can just keep, the, um, keep your camera set at continuous focus so that you can frame your subject if it's not moving, let go, recompose, and shoot. Or if your subject starts to move, you can hold the button down. And because it's on continuous, it's going to track the focus. So in, in essence, it gives you the best of, of, of all worlds. It gives you that sort of single focus, let go, recompose, and shoot. As well, you can hold the button down. So if your subject's moving, you can track it without having to set it to continuous from single. And, and lastly, I just wanted to point out that particularly with users of very fast lenses like 1.4, you know, if you want to get the beautiful bouquet or out-of-focus areas with a very fast lens, uh, focusing is critical 
And I find sometimes that if you were to lock in focus and then recompose, that slight recomposure can, because the, the focus plane is so thin at a very fast, with a very fast aperture, um, it could go out of focus. So in those situations, I like to move my focusing little circle closest to the area that I want focused, perhaps the eyes on a person or whatever it might be. And that will give you more sharp shots, particularly when you're using very fast lens openings like 2 and 1.4. That's yeah, great. Yeah, the only thing I wanted to add on that was, because uh, this took me a little while to wrap my head around, is you, you almost don't realize it, realize it, but when your standard model, when you're using half press, the shutter won't actually fire usually until it actually gets focus. Uh, and so this, what this other method lets you do is always know that it, uh, as soon as you press down the shutter, it will always shoot no matter what you've, you've done focus-wise, whereas in the default mode, uh, it, it could hunt for a few seconds. That may be the difference between getting the shot you want and not getting it. Yeah, one, one last thing just to add to your point, Ron, is that most of these cameras will allow you to set it so that the camera will not take a picture until it's focused, or you can set it to release mode, which means that it will still take a shot even if it's not completely in focus. And exactly. this is, I think, generally where you want to be because there's, it's, there are a few things more, more photographically frustrating than being there ready to shoot and the camera's not firing because it says it's not in focus. So you definitely want to go into the menu controls and set it to release as opposed to focus. So you don't have that frustration of, ah, it's there and I just can't, it's not letting me shoot and there's nothing you can do. That's great. Great input. And uh, now we have our picks for the week. And uh, Ron, what's your what's your pick for the week? Oh, this is just kind of neat. Uh, Life Magazine has just posted uh, what they consider the 21 greatest space photos of all time. Uh, and it's a variety of uh, stuff, uh, from including shots on the moon, uh, shots on Mars, a lot of shots from space looking back at the planet. Uh, there's even... Um, let's see if I can find the exact date on this one. One of the images that they post is one of the first photos of the moon shot in, I think it was like 1840. You know, one of the first real, somebody sat down and tried to get a good shot of the moon, um, you know, from, from obviously from land-based. And it's just a pretty shot, but just sort of thinking about it, that, you know, in 1840 it was when somebody actually really captured a good photo of the moon where you could... You know, take your time, look at it, understand sort of what was on there. <laughs> anyway, we'll put we'll put the link on the show notes, but it's just kind of a little bit of nostalgia. They even have a, a shot from Star Trek in there. It's considered one of the <laughs> best space photos. <laughs> and Ron, Ron, didn't they leave some Hazaplat equipment up there because they wanted to lighten their load when they were coming back from landing on the moon? I think I, did. I have heard that. Yeah. That's going to be worth a lot of money someday when the Chinese get up there <laughs> and recover it. Well, that's going to be that's going to be like the next Google challenge, right? Is going to be the yeah. is you have to go up there and get that. You know, what's great is once you're there, you can, you have something to shoot with. You know, you don't want to take it up. Yeah, that's now, right. It's, it's it's up there. Yeah, it's but you're you're going to need film, Alex. And by that time, I don't think film will be available. <laughs> Just bring a film did, back. I should see somebody speculating though that uh, at some point, you know, the Chinese are going to start uh, making their way to the moon, and then they'll bring back the artifacts we left there and put them in museums in Beijing. <laughs> what a sad thought. There'll be a huge there'll be a huge uh, diplomatic turmoil over that. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, Steve, what's your what's your pick for the week? Well, I was uh, sort of looking for a pick, and I realized that you know I have an extensive photographic 
book library. And I figured I'll just recommend books if there's no, you know, particular piece of equipment that I'm looking for. And uh, there's a photographer who I've long admired, uh, Sam Abel, who was uh, probably the longest National Geographic staff photographer. He was one of the last ones before they went to all freelance. And his book, The Life of a Photograph, and I'm just going to read a quote from it. And this is him talking. Making a picture just right takes time, even when the thing you're photographing isn't moving. Instead, you do the moving. Closer, not so close, change lenses, commit to a tripod, micro-compose some detail, step back, reconsider, recompose, repeat. And when it looks right, it also feels right, just so. And I think, you know, that's really great advice, generally speaking, uh, for twippers out there that are shooting. And basically, he's just saying, when you see something worth photographing, shoot it, but then really work it and, and see what you can get and move around and, and try new things. And that usually takes uh, your work to the next level. There's all kinds of little nuggets in this book uh, from a career in photography uh, by Sam Abel. And when you look it up, and we'll, we'll put a, 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 um, a link to it, you'll see some of the, the beautiful work that he's done over the years. Fantastic. I know, I know for me, I... I uh... If I think I have a photo, like there's there's something here, um, I probably take an, at least fifty or sixty photos of that. <laughs> I mean, it's just like yeah. you know, I just you know, if they, I can't quite figure, I know that there's a great photo here somewhere. Um, I've been shooting a lot of uh, sunrise um, shots uh, over uh, Golden Gate. We have a matte painting I have to create, and so I've been taking you know every couple of days I go out uh, first thing in the morning and. Uh, um, and it's really fascinating. You get up there and I just take, you know, I'm taking HDR photos. Um, so I'm taking three exposures of everything. And I fill up at least a card, if not two cards, every time I get there. Um, and it's just different every single time and lots of different ways of thinking about it. That's a, it's great. It sounds like a, it sounds like a book I have to read, you know. It's, yeah. Uh, oh, I totally recommend it. Uh, definitely well worth it. Um, and no question, you know, I mean, if you, if you shoot 20 frames, when you get back to the ranch to edit, you're only going to have. 20 to choose from. If you shoot 28 frames, you'll have 28 to, to choose from. And if, if the best one was number 26, you never would have got to it had you not kind of worked it. And because we love photography, it doesn't really feel like work either. So it's, it's all good. Well, and, and I think that that's the, I, when you're talking about shooting, I mean, it used to be we had to make that choice with film. And, and now it's just memory. I mean, there's no reason not to just fire off enormous amounts of photos of everything that you want and then throw it away later. Uh, but not not make that decision when you're when you're there. But I think there's also something about planning the shot too, not just taking a bunch of photos, not covering the event, but actually shooting the event and f- figuring out you know how to set it up. So, man, that sounds like what's a great your, book. What's, what's your approach, Ron, when you go out shooting? Do you tend to overshoot a little or or not so much? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, like like Alex says, if you you sort of see something and you know there's a picture in there, there, you know, what I find is like I know I can get a good picture out of this, but it sometimes takes a while. You know, you, you can be, you can look at it. You know, you'll take the shot. You'll just realize it didn't, doesn't quite capture it. You'll move around a little bit, and you even just moving a few feet can have such a dramatic effect on a picture. Uh, a few feet forward, widen out your lens, or just step to the side and realize that you've, you know, taken care of some confusion between foreground and background. Uh, that kind of stuff. I don't know if it's. I, I guess you know, for me, I'm not sure it's so much taking a whole lot of photos as t- as so much as taking a whole lot more time than I would expect to get uh, to get a single shot. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the photography I do is when I'm traveling, and so the people I'm traveling with are like, my God, why is he moving so slowly? <laughs> but, you know, it's... <laughs> now, how long are you going to stare at that image? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, my pick of the week, uh, I got a new lens. 
and I like it hey. a lot. Um, What'd you get? What'd you get? So I'm, I'm very excited. I, I, uh, we actually bought two lenses. We, we, we have a shoot coming up for the 70s, and, and we didn't have any lenses for them yet. We just bought the bodies only. We never buy the kit lenses that come with the cameras. And so we needed something for them, and we we're trying to build up our, our lens library for these new Canons. And so we bought... We, we compromised a little bit. Uh, we were looking at the L glass for the Canons, and we were looking at these 2.8, uh, 24 to 70, and 70 to 200. And we just decided to back up a little bit. We were like, you know, if we need them later, if, we don't, if we're not happy with what we get, we're just going to go ahead and buy the less expensive Sigma lenses, which are about half the price. Now, they're not cheap. You know, they're $800 each, uh, but they're not 1500 to $2,000 each, which are what the Canon L glass is. Now, what they don't have uh, that the Canon glass had that we were looking at was uh, stabiliz- image, image stabilization. And you probably can't drop them off the top of a truck in Africa uh, and have expect them to survive. That said, I really, really like them. <laughs> so so the, um, the 2470 is, is going to be my pick because that's the one I've been using a lot over the last uh, couple days. And I just find I find the the focus to be snappy. I find the the action to be snappy. I like the the way that I go back and forth between manual and autofocus. Um, you know where you you can pop it in and out. Um, I, I just really I really like the uh, I like the whole feel of it, and the images look great. You know that are coming out of it. And so uh, you know I. I I haven't done a head-to-head between the Sigma and the and the Canon, so I don't know as far as sharpness goes, um, you know, whether they, they add up. But the images look fantastic that are coming out of there, and I just um, – there is a version, I think, some people were talking about. There's, uh, the 2470 does not have uh, – there's no version of the Canon that has uh, – someone on the on the IRC was pointing out that uh, there is no 24-70 that has IS, um, but there's the 7200 does uh, on the Canon L-Glass. Um, and I uh, – uh, and maybe I'll miss that at some point in time, but but I think that uh, I uh, we're just really happy with these lenses, and they they seem to work really well, and they're very cost effective, you know, within range. They're fixed two point eight uh, aperture, which is which usually makes things a lot more expensive. Uh, and but we just couldn't we couldn't justify pulling the trigger uh, uh, on um, on the full uh, Canon glass, and uh, and I think we made a good a good decision. Did, uh, what do you have as far as that goes, Ron? For uh, the I was Canon? just going to say for. Uh, not to answer your question, but for those of you that are considering uh, the the twenty four to seventy and the seventy to two hundred, there's a lot of really strong rumors floating around that both of those lenses are going to be updated by Canon um, with you know new L glass uh, with image stabilization built in. I think right now you can buy the existing ones. There's some promotion that Canon's got where they're they're uh, offering rebates on it, which is typically a good sign that there is uh, something new coming out sometime soon. So anyway, now you're considering don't. it. Now you might think about it. Well, you know, you made your decision as much as anything based on price, and so I guarantee that these new lenses will be uh, in that same price range, if not higher, these days. Right. Um, right. But for if you are looking for the twenty four seventy two point eight uh, with IS, uh, you know, I keep hearing that Canon is going to have something coming out in that space soon. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. So, so there you have it, and. Uh, uh, we have run to the end, and we're right on. We started late, but we're right on time on the way out. Uh, Ron, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, Ron Brickman. It's the easiest thing. Great. And uh, Steve, where can people find you? Um, well, they can find me at my website, uh, which is stevesimonphoto.com. And if you go to workshops, you'll see I'm doing a workshop at ICP, the International Center of Photography, this weekend. Um, so if you're interested, uh, sign up and see you there. Great. This mess that you've been listening to is This Week in Photography. 
uh, and you can take that shutter off, you can take that lens cap off and get out there and start shooting.